I'm your host, Paul Wicker, and this is the PPC Show brought to you by AdStage. We just got off with Caitlin Halpert from 3Q Digital up in Burlington, Vermont, and we did it. We went there, we talked about Breitbart and removing your ads from Breitbart and how to do it and whether you should do it and what uh, some different agencies are doing in response to all the craziness that's happening with the entire world, the New York Times, uh, all others starting to write about ad targeting, which is right in our wheelhouse. So it's a really interesting conversation. We also talked about things like ad testing and advertising on Gemini and Pinterest. So listen in. We record the PPC show most Tuesdays at 10 a.m. out of our AdSage headquarters. You can pick up our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you want to sign up for our weekly newsletter, head over to blog.adstage.io. All right, enjoy the episode. So we should start by getting to know know you a little bit. So uh, maybe we can start if you give us kind of the, the quick background of how Caitlin Halpert ended up in ad tech. Sure. Uh, I started pretty soon out of college, and uh, I found an ad for old agency I worked for called iSearch Media on Craigslist. Nice. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that's how I got my start. And uh, a couple years after that, iSearch Media was acquired by 3Q Digital, the agency that I now work at. And then I also see that you made the move from California, San Francisco, over to Burlington, Vermont. Slight difference in uh, environment out there? Yeah, it's a little different. I grew up in Vermont, so it's definitely where where I like to be. San Francisco wasn't quite my speed. I was there for three years, and I've been back in Vermont now for four years. Oh, nice. I worked at Stratton Mountain. Nice. Yeah, for one one winter, and I see that you are a ski rescue, or you have a skill of ski rescue. So if I fall yeah. into like 10 feet of powder, you can save me? Yeah, I did ski patrol for, I think, four or five years um, when I was in high school and college. Um, maybe I still have those skills. I think I could still do some some first responder activities. Well, do you bring, like the St. Bernard's, do you just bring a big thing of brandy and just give it to me? <laughs> That's how I'd want to be saved. That sounds pretty easy. And so it always blows my mind that people like skied in high school because I grew up on the East Coast, but kind of in the New Jersey, well, in the New Jersey area on the Jersey Shore. And like you'd always drive like six hours to go skiing. So would you actually finish class and then go skiing at like three and just ski all evening or how did that work? So I I started skiing when I was three and uh, in elementary school because my town was right at the base of a mountain. Um, gym class in the winter was actually on the mountain. So we didn't even have to wait until the end of the day. <laughs> it was during the day. Wow. Okay. So you literally just like walked out of your door and then you could ski at school. Yeah, pretty much. It was, it was very nice, but that makes me super spoiled. So even though I'm back in Vermont, Burlington is kind of far from most of the mountains. So that 45-minute drive to the mountains sometimes seems a little too long. I'm with you. I just went to Tahoe two weeks ago. Uh, there's been a ton of snow out here for the first time in years. And the last few times I've gone now, I'm like, I'll only do places on property because there's the little shuttle. You know, you just wake up, you put your stuff on, you walk to the corner, and someone picks you up and drives you there. Obviously, if you can get the ones where you can, like, ski right out of your, you know, back whip window or porch or whatever. Uh, I can't afford those, but those always seem <laughs> super nice. That would be great. One day, one day. Yeah. I did, just not having, so I, I ski more than I snowboard. I'm a really bad snowboarder. So if I go with people who are like super beginners, I'll snowboard because I can kind of fall with them. Um, but I hate ski boots and that whole process of like carrying them and lugging them around. So like the, I always have that dream of just, you put them on and then your skis are on like your back deck and then you just ski off your deck. Yeah, that would be the dream. Uh, I think ski boots are the worst sports equipment invented ever. That's new idea. All right. It's a new startup, new ski boots. Somebody's got to do something that doesn't feel like you're just putting a clamp of wood on your foot. Um, all right. Let's, let's talk a little bit about some marketing stuff. So, uh, what do you do? So you're at 3Q now, right? Yes. Yep. I am a senior director of client services here. Great. And can you tell us a little bit about 3Q? How big are you folks? I know you're part of Heart Hanks. Like, what does that mean? Who's Heart Hanks? 
Yeah, so HeartHanks is uh, you know, a very large marketing entity. Uh, we operate pretty independently from them. Uh, 3Q has about 200 employees. We're a performance digital marketing agency, so we specialize mostly in paid search, paid social, um, some display, CRO, like kind of all the tangentially related things, SEO, things like that. And like how many people at 3Q? Uh, there's just over 200. Wow, that is pretty big. And I assume they don't have an office in Burlington and you are remote? No, we do have an office here. What? Um, <laughs> there are seven of us in the Vermont office. We actually have a really great remote office culture. We have a lot of small offices out there. We've got a small office in New York City, in Austin, um, in Raleigh. We're starting one in Charlottesville. So we, we like to just build an office where there's talent to be had and, and just kind of support it that way um, because it's a lot more expensive to try and have everyone in San Francisco. Rent is a little, a little expensive for office space there. The rent is too damn high, as they say. Um, well, and I know I realized that that was like pretty presumptuous of me to be like, you can't have an office in Burlington. But because agencies are really embracing the whole remote uh, kind of worker concept, right? A lot of agencies are just people working out of home full-time all over the country, that it's pretty typical now that when you when people aren't in a major city, you think, oh, they're probably remote. So, But apologies to Burlington. I'm a big fan of Burlington. I used to go down there, go to the one movie theater that I remember in Burlington uh, when I lived in uh, East Arlington. Um, right. So you guys are 200 people, but you're in a small office of uh, seven uh, up there in Burlington. And what does your day-to-day -day look like? Yeah, so my day-to-day -day is, is a lot about managing my team and making sure that they're able to provide the best possible service to our clients. And so I'll also help to make sure that those client relationships are really strong and that we're making sure the actions that we take are meeting their goals. And, and sometimes we have clients that don't really know what their goals are, so we can help them figure out what their goals should be. Well, retaining talent, and you know, we'll talk about marketing stuff too, but as somebody who's kind of running a team at an agency, we have a lot of folks at agencies that listen to or come onto the show. Uh, so we end up talking a lot about how do you hire and retain account management talent because it's really competitive now. So do you have any tricks or uh, any kind of things you've learned from the hiring process over the years on good ways to build uh, a good account management team? I think um, what we really do best is always giving people new opportunities and new responsibilities so that everyone is continuing to grow really quickly and they get rewarded for that. So we're able to build in a lot of different levels for you know, job titles and compensation so that people continue to get rewarded on a regular basis as they new, learn new things. Uh, so I think that's probably the biggest one. And then we've got some really good perks at the company. We have unlimited PTO, um, which is becoming a bit more standard in Silicon Valley, but uh, is rare in a place like Vermont. Um, and then we have kind of like a local budget that we can spend on whatever sort of things that this office wants to do. If we want to go out to dinner, um, we get lunch every Thursday. Um, we actually are getting it, I think, two or three times this week. So we, we all had an office lunch today. Um, so little things like that, people definitely appreciate. And do you have a structure where the same person kind of who owns the account manages and like kind of pulls all the levers? Or do you have a team that interacts with a client and then somebody else that kind of does some more of the kind of actual management? Yeah. So our client services people are doing the actual account management. We, um, a couple years ago, had tried uh, separating those two things and it just caused more inefficiency. We'd rather have the people making the changes speaking directly to the clients. So what we often hear is it's two different skill sets and it's hard because some people are great on the phone, they set clear agendas, they're very organized, they follow up, they write great emails, but then when it comes to kind of going through spreadsheets to look for negative keywords, you know, their eyes glaze over or vice versa. You have people who, you know, go learn some new formula in Excel so they could do something cool from, you know, that they learned from Brad Geddes, uh, but then they hate talking to folks. Uh, do you see that as you try to hire, and is there any way to overcome that problem? Yeah, I think, I, I think it, it can be challenging to find that right person. Uh, I think at an agency, though, 
it's really hard to give someone a career growth path if they don't want to be client-facing. Because um, ultimately, that's what we do as an agency. And if you really want to kind of succeed and go somewhere in agency life, you should probably be client-facing. And um, a lot of people are bad at client services in the beginning. And it just takes practice. I used to hate talking to clients on the phone. Um, and now, I mean, it doesn't phase me at all. So it just takes time. What did you hate about it? I just hated not knowing what they were going to say. Um, I had a client when I first started out that we just had to kind of call them and check in, not scheduled calls, just kind of, say, hey, did you get a chance to look at your monthly report? Like, do you have any questions? And just never knowing what those questions were going to be, especially when I was new to the industry and wasn't sure I'd have all the answers. Um, and that's what makes client services a lot easier. If you know what you're talking about, if you know what changes you made last week, it makes it a lot easier to speak to. And how often when you call those customers, they, they don't. They never looked at their report and they have no topics to talk about. And there's, if you don't go in with a plan, there's just kind of that dead air of like, well, did you look at your report? Yeah, I mean, things look good. Any, do yeah. you need any training on anything? Um, it's, anyway. Um, I just I appreciate some of the insight from someone who's kind of because I've seen in your career at iSearch Media and 3Q you've kind of had a bunch of different roles uh, and managing a team like these are the things you worry about um, and then what was I going to ask you oh search social how much of each do you do I would say mostly paid search probably 70 percent um, and most of the remainder would be paid social um, and is that Facebook primarily uh, yeah, mostly Facebook. We actually have a lot of Pinterest clients, um, which has been really fun. Pinterest is a really interesting social network because it's somewhat of a crossover with search because people are searching on Pinterest, unlike Facebook, where they're just seeing what their friends are up to. Um, and so it's a newer platform. I'm curious to see kind of where where they take it. Spoken like a true search person. <laughs> you know, on Facebook where they just hang out and do stupid stuff. <laughs> Unlike search where it's real uh, intent behind every keyword, um, which I, I agree. I'm a search. We all come up either through search or social historically. I'm sure, you know, kids these days, who knows what they'll do. But um, folks who have been in the industry for, you know, five, ten years tend to be search people or social people who came, you know, the social people all came from, not all, many of them came from the organic side because there was no paid social really back in the day. And then you have the search folks. We all like keywords and uh, you know, optimizing bids. And on the social side, they're like, bids? Just set it to auto bid. Um, okay, so mostly search. And Pinterest, is it because your client base is a lot of retail or because of that search alignment? Why do you think you're seeing so much Pinterest? Uh, I've got a number of wedding clients. So <laughs> when you have three wedding clients and Pinterest is the place to plan your wedding that that really kind of got it started and then yeah a lot of other retail clients once we've gotten that experience and figuring out what works and what doesn't work um trying to do other tests there and, and we've actually seen it be pretty successful on most of the retail clients that we've tested it on yeah that's that's great to know i used to work with someone who went over to run uh the ads api for pinterest um and we've talked a lot so you know at AdStage we don't have a pinterest integration but we're always trying to figure it out. So we're working on Gemini right now. And then next, it's either Pinterest or Snapchat, and there's an ongoing debate. It sounds like if you guys voted, you would vote Pinterest. Yeah, yeah, that would certainly be my vote, especially if you're saying with performance marketing as a, you know, trying to build, build that out. It's just a lot nicer for that than Snapchat is at this point. Right. And Snapchat, if you've been reading the news, um, Facebook today, well, Facebook has been releasing a series of features, which is pretty much makes Facebook Messenger or uh, Instagram identical to Snapchat. And there was some great kind of Twitter war between the product managers at Snapchat and Facebook, uh, where the Snapchat uh, product manager had posted like two pictures of his, like he's got babies, like twin, twin girls. And he wrote like, write a caption. And the the Instagram product manager wrote, your UI is going to look exactly like Snapchat. That's amazing or something like that. Um, so the two product people kind of got into it a little bit. Uh, and in the news today, it's really kind of blown up because 
the UI looks almost identical. And what Facebook is claiming is that Snapchat invented a new category of ads. And this is just Facebook doing their take on stories and how to do uh, filters, uh, which is a bit of a stretch. But um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on kind of the Facebook strategy to basically just copy Snapchat? Uh, I mean, it, it makes sense to see what's working and uh, and try and do it hopefully better. Um, I don't think there's as much advantage to it just being the same. I don't think that's going to draw any Snapchat users over to doing the same thing on Facebook. Um, but Facebook is is a giant. They have so many users that kind of anything that they do that's comparable to another platform out there is kind of likely to beat it out just because of the number of users. And their their demographics don't overlap that much. So you assume like the people on Snapchat are going to keep using Snapchat. So they're probably under 25 or their their core yeah. demographic. And they probably don't use Facebook. Maybe they use Instagram. Uh, but certainly like, you know, everybody's grandma's now on Facebook. So you have that whole group of people who may start playing with stories. And then you have kind of the 30 to 40s crowd. Uh, we're all on Instagram now, kind of even like in mass, people are kind of starting to adopt Instagram. So it kind of makes sense. Copy Snapchat and then give it to your demographic uh, because you know it works. Um, and I think just naturally people always seem to not like the copycats, but it's like a super common strategy. And in the end, like in five years, no one remembers that, you know, sync came after Backstreet Boys. No one cares. They just... I think I might even have the the timeline right, but at the time I remember I was a kid and it came out and it was like, oh my god, that's just a total copycat of the other one. That's so lame. And then Justin Timberlake. Um, the I wanted to ask you about Gemini though. So Pinterest, you gave a pretty good endorsement for. What about um, Gemini? Have you played around at all with Gemini? Yeah, uh, we we do. Try and get Gemini accounts live on most most of our clients. Um, I would say it's a pretty terrible platform to work with, so that um, is a major roadblock. Um, they try to make up for it though with the best customer service of any of the you know other search platforms because it's so difficult to use. But the reps will do everything for you if you want, um, so that can be helpful. I think it's just hard because the volume on the search side of things there is just so low that a lot of times it can just not feel like it's worth the effort to put campaigns in there that you're then not going to have any data on to make any decisions and so you're kind of just letting it sit there. So many of our clients we just have brand campaigns live there because um, we're you know relatively confident that it makes sense to show up on brand searches. Um, wherever those happen. So what percentage of your customers do you think are on Gemini, even just if it's like a brand, simple brand buy? I would, I would say over 50%. Yes, okay. I mean, I'm hearing something similar from a lot of folks. It seems like the consensus is you kind of have to be there. It's like Microsoft and Bing, too. You know, it's like you have to be there, and then it depends how much inventory there is. That's how much time you spend on it. So for Microsoft, you probably spend a decent amount of time on Bing, not as much as you should. In Gemini, you get very little time. Uh, but you mentioned the UI is not great. So any, I'm just curious, like what are some of the things that you feel like are missing from there? Um, so a lot of the complaints that, that I hear on the team is just how difficult it is to navigate. There are certain metrics that are pretty standard that Gemini doesn't report on. Um, some of the historical reports are hard to find or you know, limited time frame that you're able to pull. Um, I think it can be hard when you're used to everything that's available in AdWords. You're always comparing everything to what you can do there. I mean, Bing has those issues too. You, there's a limit to how much historical data you can pull in a report. And I would like to know what um, you know, competitor insights look like over six months ago, um, but a lot of those things are, are limited. Uh, interesting. And the, um, I know for Gemini, there's like the search inventory and the quote unquote native, which is like mobile app display. But, uh, and in the beginning, they were very much like, we've got this mobile app inventory you should buy. 
for like video or mobile app installs. Lately, it feels like now they're saying, well, you know, buy the search inventory. Uh, do you buy both or, or one or the other? So most of our paid search accounts, um, we are there on search. And we do have some clients where we're testing out native. And I would say we're finding a lot more success with native mostly because of the volume, not so much because it's driving, you know, better performance, but there's enough volume to figure out more quickly if it's working or not and if it's worth investing. Um, so I, I think I've got about four accounts right now that are running um, native through Gemini and, and finding, you know, level of success to continue uh, investing there. Nice. Uh, so let's, Talk a little bit about ad testing as well, because I know, uh, well, for some reason, I think you know ad testing. Maybe did you speak somewhere about ad testing or did you write a blog post? Um, I've got a lot of opinions about ad testing, but I'm actually uh, speaking at Hero Conference down in L.A. Uh, about when not to test. Uh, so that's coming up in a couple of weeks. So and what's what's the date? We can plug it. Or do you know the date? I could Google it as well. <laughs> I don't remember the date. Middle of April. Okay, well that's close enough. Uh, so mid-April, you'll be at HeroConf LA speaking on ad testing. So if you're headed to HeroConf, be sure to check out the session. Um, but let's let's learn everything you were going to tell people anyway here, so that uh, yeah. if people are lazy, they don't have to go. No, just kidding. Uh, so first, let's kind of set the stage with ad testing. So um, when people go into kind of thinking about what am I what am I going to do with this test? Like what are the things you, you tell them, okay, figure this stuff out before you even start your test? Yeah. Um, I think that that's definitely the right setup because everyone has been, had it drilled into their brains to always be testing, always test everything, run A-B tests on everything. Um, and, and maybe that's the case a lot of times, but you have to consider what, what, what you're really trying to get out of those tests. Um, you know, there's some things that you have to consider, like what's actually required for that test to be useful. And I think about this with AdWords because of, you know, the ad history that you have, a lot of times it makes the most sense to restart your control ad at the same time that you're launching your test ad but then you're, you're knowingly hurting your performance just to set the level playing field. Um, and then kind of the other big question to ask is, are these test results even going to be usable in the future? So if it's a one-time promotion and it's not going to be you know, used again, um, if it's kind of this odd holiday time and your, your um, product offering tends to change from year to year, um, and then, you know, any other factors that are going to make all that effort of, of building an A-B test kind of meaningless. Um, and I see there, there's two prime examples I see on that one. And one is when you're testing Facebook ads. Um, there's all sorts of workarounds that people try and do, but just fundamentally the way that Facebook works, each ad is going to have a different number of likes and a different number of shares that then kind of just builds on itself and dramatically changes the outcome that you're going to get and is unlikely to be repeatable in the future. And the other place that I've seen that, a lot of times with the recent change on AdWords for the GDN of responsive ads and our clients are asking us, well, how do responsive ads perform compared to banner ads? Should we only be doing one or the other? And you can't compare them because they're entering different inventory. So you're going to get different performance, but it's not reflective of the ad format itself or the ad copy. It's reflective of where those ads are showing. So let me interrupt you. Explain what responsive ads are. Sure. So this is uh, the new ad format on the Google Play Network where you're putting in uh, a single image, I think now you can put in a second image and text and Google is automatically resizing it to fit all of their ad inventory out there. It's a really smart solution because they, they were always pushing advertisers to have as many ad sizes as possible, but they have so many different ad sizes that you can advertise on in the GDN. It's just not practical to have your creative team create all these different variations. 
So it's a lot simpler to get out in all of that inventory with just you know, one or two images and the text that you would uh, like to promote. And you're saying that if you create a responsive ad uh, or you create kind of traditional IAB standard ads and run them on GDN, they're actually pulling from like different inventory? Yeah, so for ban banner ads, if you've got your three ad sizes in there and you've got a responsive ad, those three banner ads can only show in the inventory that fits those ad sizes, but then your responsive ad can show in all of the inventory. So it's entering completely different auctions and way more auctions than your, your banner ads are, are being entered into. Got you. So, uh, so you suggest folks don't test those two against each other, or I guess you're making the bigger point of like, if you run both, like, just be aware that your result is not going to help you decide which type to run. Right. It, it's not an either or question and looking at the data isn't going to help you make that decision because it's, it's not really telling you anything about the ad format. It's telling you about the ad inventory and, you know, usually the broader inventory that you can enter, the more refined than you can get with your other targeting. And your point also reminds me of uh, in product, there's kind of this uh, question we always try to remind ourselves. If you're, you know, trying to figure out a solution for a UI problem or something like that, um, and you want to test, you always should stop and think, okay, well, if this test proves, you know, if, the, if it's binary and there's like two solutions, right? Like solution A, what are we going to do? And if it's B, what are we going to do? And if it's not clear what you'd actually do with the kind of the outcome of the test, there's no point in doing it. And it's, it sounds like intuitive, but a lot of people don't stop and do it. Uh, to your point, you don't stop and think, well, is this actually going to be useful in the future? Uh, and one easy way to do is like just simulate, you know, pretend you got it's done and one ad one. Okay, what are you going to do differently? You're going to change your campaign tactics or uh, are you struggling to figure out what to do? Yeah. Yeah. And that what, what really bothers me that I hear comes from advertisers and from clients is, oh, we haven't reached statistical significance yet. And that's just like not mathematically correct. You're not always going to reach statistical significance. Your ads aren't always going to actually yield different results. And kind of by checking in all the time and, and just waiting longer, it you're just kind of wasting time and thinking that you're ending up with statistical significant results, but you've kind of ended up fudging it in the process. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, so then what do, well, give me more don'ts then. I was I, My just brain always wants to ask you, what should I do? But let's stay with your theme of like, when, when should I not be testing? Uh, what are more examples? <laughs> Um, kind of a continuation of what I was just saying of running tests too long. Um, you can run them so long that your results aren't really useful anyway. I think you're better off before you start the test, set your end deadline. And at that point, you're going to choose a winner anyway, right? You're going to move forward and do your next test. And so just set that end deadline and know what your next test is going to be. If you haven't reached statistical significance, then try something that's more different in, in terms of the different copy that you're testing rather than maybe it's just like some small call to action change and that's not yielding any results. Try a whole new ad. The, the more different it is, hopefully you're more likely to get um, results out of that test. But I think that's it's one thing that people don't really remember is the way that ad serving works. You're you're kind of always going to pick a winner, even if there's not a winner. And so that kind of defeats the whole purpose of waiting for statistical significance anyway, because you're then just going to go on your best judgment and usually you're just gonna say, Oh, well, this one has the higher click through rate or the higher conversion rate. Even though it's not statistically significant, that's the one that I'm choosing. Which is kind of funny that we do that, right? That uh, because I guess you know statistically, the ads are not one ad is not better than the other. But yet uh, intuitively, we say, well, this one has a better CTR and it's got 10,000 impressions, so it has some pattern of success. So I'm going to pick that one. 
So do you think that's that's flawed and we shouldn't do that? Or do you think using that kind of common sense approach is is okay? I think it's fine. I think what we are, what I'm trying to argue is to get out of this mindset that somehow we have this perfect testing environment that we can do in paid search or in paid social and just kind of if you accept the flaws of the system and just know when you're making decisions that aren't based on data, uh, then I think, you know, just keep moving forward, but know those, those times that you're making a decision based on data are different than the times that you're not. And if you're reflecting back on the tests that you've done in the year, it's going to be easy for you to say, oh, remember that ad, it had better click-through rate. And you have to remember, yeah, it had better click-through rate and we used it after that, but it didn't actually win the ad copy test. Right. That's uh, There's still quite a bit of art in that whole art and science blend of marketing. So it is, it does feel right to be able to look at two ads that have got a lot of traffic. And even if they're not stat sig, you can still say, well, this ad looks like it's doing better. And even if it's not statistically significant, it's still worth iterating on that ad, even if it turns out maybe you were wrong. Um, it's also, you bring up a good point too about every, well, ad testing is also like black magic. Everybody's got some secret and they, you know, you know, as a product guy trying to build an ad testing platform. So we built something called automate where you can kind of build like if then logic in. And we support all five, well not all five networks, five networks, Google, Bing, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. So you can imagine the way you test an ad on Twitter is vastly different than AdWords, is vastly different than Facebook. And each network also has its own ad serving, uh, bid algo, budget, uh, you know, kind of budget pacing algos and all these things and all this nuance to try to, you know, how many initial impressions you get before they give you a quality score or a relevant score or a whatever Twitter calls it. So... <clears throat> What we found is like we couldn't build a testing platform. So there's some folks like Brad Geddes or uh, Frederick Valleys who build very specific AdWords testing tools that are great because they are super deep in like their way of doing testing on AdWords. And if you if that works for you, uh, it probably is great. Uh, and I know a lot of people love their tools, so I assume it works really well. We took the opposite path of just like, look, we'll let you build any kind of rule on any network, and that's up to you. You can just put like time frames in and to rotate things uh, or conditions if you want to hit 10,000 impressions and then rotate the ad or you want to rotate every two weeks because we kind of gave up trying to figure out how to test on all these different networks. Plus, like, they're fighting against you, right? Because Google doesn't really want you messing around with their ad serving. It's much easier for Google if you just, like, write a bunch of ads and, like, throw them into Google and let Google figure it out. And Facebook's going down that same path, too. So, you have the other networks kind of lagging in some ways, but Google and Facebook, I feel like, don't really want you testing because it's just a lot of work serving new ads that might not get performance, and it's it's a cost. Um, and actually, I'll make one last point and then stop rambling. But you brought up the cost piece, which I never really thought about that way. Of When you do a test, think of it like you're paying for that test because, like you said, you're going to build ads that don't perform as well. You know, you're taking risks. You can continue to run the ads that you know get X CTR and X cost per conversion, but you're going to try something different, which will good chance do worse, which means you've just lost some money. So there's a physical price you pay when you test. So you really should only do it when you can take kind of clear action on that test. Yeah. End of rant. <laughs> I mean, I think what you're saying about both AdWords and Facebook kind of auto-optimizing that's the other piece I think people forget about. Your alternative is not just that you're randomly running ads. Your alternative is to have the platform use a lot more data than is accessible to you, optimize which ads to show to which people. Because even though, you've, let's say you've got two ads in there in Google and you're running them against each other, and one comes out as the winner with statistical significance, that doesn't necessarily mean that that ad would perform best across your entire audience that you're hitting with that keyword. And so there are going to be kind of these little pockets where even though your click-through rate would be lower on some subset of the audience, it's still the highest it could possibly be with that other ad. So you get a lot of advantages by just using the optimized rotation settings because Google just knows more and has more targeting options than you have. And it saves you a lot of time. I mean, you could just keep writing ads, throw them in there, and see what sticks. And that's simpler. Um, the clients usually don't like that. 
Uh, <laughs> I'm working on my way of convincing them that we don't need to do formal testing. Just keep writing stuff, throw it in there. Yeah. It'll work out. <laughs> yeah, so I used to work at Kenshu, and we were always selling this bid algo, right, which was like this magical bid algo, which will make you millions. Uh, and for some clients, it certainly did because, you know, if you're like a – well, I don't want to name names, but if you're like a big retailer with tons of traffic, algorithmic bidding – you know, can do some really amazing things. And these big companies don't want to give Google all their conversion data because they have this natural fear of Google, uh, which stems in many ways from Google putting some of them out of business. So the major kind of hotel uh, and uh, airline booking sites, you know, that used to be where you go to, you know, book airfare. And then Google introduced their like uh, airfare tool. So then a lot of folks are like, whoa, we don't want to teach Google how to do this well. Uh, and that's like in many industries where if Google sees, you know, I can keep people on the search result page, I'll just add that data here. So a lot of companies, long story short, were like, I'm not giving my conversion data to Google, therefore I can't really use their algos because I want to optimize on revenue or margin, and there's no way I'm giving my margin data to Google. So a lot of Kenshu customers used algo bidding, kind of that method where they just dump all the data in and kind of let let the algo figure out the bids. Forget about ads. Ads were still you know, the marketer had to write a bunch of ads and come up with ideas and concepts and tests. But I guess in the happy place where, you know, everybody had no kind of privacy concerns and data concerns and competitive issues, you would just put all your conversion data, which in theory you track all the way down to the end, you know, lifetime value, super, super deep conversion tracking, and then let the engines figure out which ads, you know, put a bunch of ads in there and let them figure out which ads to serve. That would be like Nirvana. Yeah, it definitely would be. Uh, okay. I don't think um, the other underlying piece, right, is that Google and Facebook want to make money. So it's in their best interest to optimize for what things get clicked on and spend. And most advertisers want to save money. So, you know, they want volume and revenue at the cheapest cost. So those two algos kind of have different overarching goals. Um, Plus, you want to make sure you're doing something for the client when they're like, what are you doing over there? You're not even testing ads? No, I've just got everything on Conversion Optimizer. All, all the ads are set to rotate, uh, optimized for, for conversions. Uh, everything's set. I've got a script that automatically takes your uh, top volume queries, adds that as keywords. I'm done. <laughs> I opted into GDN last week, so now you're on display. Everything's fine. Yeah. Right. Yeah, well, and it's funny because the world feels like it is moving in that direction. Um, and some people feel like that's bad because that's how, you know, people measure how well we do as agencies. But others say, yeah, all that stuff, you know, let, let the bots do that so I can focus more on creative or uh, campaign strategy or maybe targeting. Um, do, do you fear the bots taking over big chunks of our jobs? I, I, I don't fear it. Um, I think that there's just, so many places where that unique targeting will need to be available, you know, whether it's audience lists or, or whatever it is, you're always going to have brands that don't want to share their data. And so, you know, there's not going to be anything for, for Google or, or Facebook to optimize on. Um, so I think that they will continue in the direction, definitely Google will continue going in the direction they have where they're kind of, um, slowly taking away um, control. Uh, you know, sometimes they give that control back, like with the tablet bid modifiers. Right. Um, and then in other places, they're, they're removing again with the change to the way exact match is going to work, which is newly breaking news. Um, definitely curious about that one. Yeah, there was a PPC chat this week, which is the every Tuesday Hannapin and I forget what Hannapin's blog thing is. PPC Hero? Yes, PPC Hero. They do uh, you know, live Twitter chat on the hashtag PPC chat at 10 a.m. Pacific. 10 a.m. Pacific? Yeah, no, 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern. Uh, and today was exact match. So uh, all kind of the PPC crowd, not all. I wasn't there, uh, but other folks uh, hopped on there. I was there briefly uh, and talked about exact match. Which we talked on. Actually, I don't know if we touched on it last week. Let's talk about it a little bit. Um, Brad Geddes did a great post about. Um, oh, now I'm not going to remember. Semantic versus uh, something like synonym, but uh, 
well, I'm really butchering the definition here. Uh, there's a great Brad, uh, Brad Getty's post about the differences and like what it means to you. I don't know if you do you have a description in a can for exact match changes. Um, I mean, basically, you know, with word order and uh, uh, plurals not mattering for exact match, it's kind of like a exact match broad, broad, uh, modified, like what they did when they introduced broad match modified, which was going in the other direction, right, giving us more control. And exact match is kind of taking away control. Theoretically, you still have that control because you have your exact match negatives hopefully still work in the same way. So you can still maintain the control. Um, I mean, all of these changes are designed for advertisers that don't know what they're doing. Um, <laughs> and so it, it's going to make their performance better and easier for them to manage accounts. But for an agency like 3Q Digital where we've got our methodology on how we build out accounts, it, you know, we kind of have to rethink that approach and make sure that it's still going to work in this new world. That is an excellent description. Um, the the words I was searching for, I checked my notes from last week, semantic versus syntactic match uh, was kind of the buzzwords I wanted to throw at you. But uh, I think you, you summarized it ex uh, in an excellent way and put it in context of an, another example of kind of as time goes on, AdWords seeks to take a little bit more control away from kind of the pros so that it has kind of more levers to pull on their side. In addition, from a data perspective, we generally kind of lose data. Uh, I think back to search queries, like the difference between a search query report now and five years ago when you could actually see your search queries. Um, you know, those types of things. You know, Google still has access to data. So when it comes to things like optimizing or testing, you know, it gets a little bit uh, more difficult over time. Cool. So on testing, are there any other any other do not test scenarios we should know about before I start asking you um, very explosive political questions that we shouldn't we shouldn't cover? Um, I think that that those are kind of my primary thoughts on it. It's it's mostly uh, I'm kind of encouraging instead of having always be testing as your mantra, maybe it should be always be questioning, um, and you know. Don't just follow the best practices. Don't don't just do what everyone else is doing because that's what you're supposed to do. Really, just think it through and what makes sense in each individual case. Well, that it sounds like great life advice in addition <laughs> to great testing advice, uh, which which actually does bring me to a pretty political point. Um, but you can't not see the news about uh, negative targeting on Breitbart. Uh, so if you've been following, uh, New York Times just did an article about brands kind of pulling budgets back from Google for two reasons. One, because AdSense serves on Breitbart, which is, if you don't know Breitbart, you're not following the story, is uh, what they call alt-right site or a very kind of right-wing site. Uh, a lot of their content is, uh, people describe it as like homophobic or white supremacist or, you know, terrible things like that. So obviously, brands don't want their ads uh, next to like these types of stories. And then also the other place ads appear are on YouTube. So video ads very often, you know, there's like some ISIS recruiting videos and then suddenly like an ad for Nike pops up. Um, so people are screenshotting these ads and tweeting at the companies. Uh, there's a group called Sleeping Giants. Uh, they're on Facebook if you want to join the group. And they are kind of coordinating all these screenshot exercises. And they have a giant list. I want to say it's up to like 16,000 companies that have now quote-unquote, pulled their ads off of Breitbart. So I want to talk a little bit about what does it really mean to pull your ads off something? Um, because uh, they, they teach you in this, which is pretty funny, they teach you how to do AdWords negative targeting by like just adding an exclusion. Um, but they don't really talk about um, kind of the ad networky side of it, where like if you're buying display traffic like and your things end up on Breitbart, is there anything you can do about it? But before I ask you any questions, I mean, any have you been have you heard this news? <laughs> I, I have certainly heard this news. Uh, we had a number of clients that had you know tweeted at them with screenshots of their ad on there, which I think we found that all of them were from retargeting. So uh, it's it's that person's fault. They were reading Breitbart. <laughs> um, hmm. But it it's a interesting um, problem. I have also seen there was one instance where they called out a brand that we're working with and 
we're a hundred percent positive that they doctored the image because um, we were only advertising on the GDN and there's zero data for Breitbart and the ads that were in there were not ads that were active at the time. Um, and so uh, it, it makes me worry that people are going so far and deep into this and kind of not really getting to the root of the problem. I think that Google definitely needs to do more around brand safety and they've been a lot more silent on the subject than I would like. Um, and just kind of giving a, oh, we're working on it. And, and really, they have no incentive to work on it because if people are visiting those sites and Breitbart site traffic, I'm sure, has massively increased recently, even though some of those people now are going to Breitbart because they disagree with it. Um, that's all good news for Google. And so there's only certain instances where Google really takes a, a moral stance on, on things and often they don't really follow through. Um, like payday loans, they tried to make this big stance on, but then there were a lot of articles where people were finding all sorts of uh, payday loans that were still advertising on Google. So mostly if Google's going to do anything, it's going to be for a marketing reason. They're not actually going to help those advertisers. So it, it, it's going to be a continuous challenge. It's not just Breitbart. There's lots of other sites out there that are not brand safe. And you mentioned retargeting. So like a technical question, which I don't know if you'll know the answer to. But if so, if you're retargeting a user, and for folks who don't know retargeting, right, you go to a website and then they cookie you. And then next time uh, you show up somewhere in the Google ecosystem, you say like, oh, I really want to like target that person who's been to my website. And there's different ways to do it. But in general, like that's the best, you know, uh, Google calls a customer match. And that's one of probably the, the new tactics everybody's doing. And obviously you could do that on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Well, LinkedIn's announcing it soon. Um, so does that kind of like, oh, I don't want to say Trump, does that overcome uh, the negative if you do like, because you do negative site targeting when you run GDN and then you have to like apply it to campaigns, if I remember right. Um, yeah. But if you retarget that user, do you know if that can like, overcome that negative? So your negative will still hold, but I mean, it's kind of like just sticking your finger in like the leaky bucket. Like it, it, you're always going to have these other sites that are problematic and adding your single exclusion for Breitbart or we've come up with a list of, I think, you know, 200 sites that we exclude from any of our advertisers that, that want to be on that list. I mean, there's new sites every day entering into the Google Display Network. So it, there's not a way for us as the media buyers to control it. It has to come from, from the ad networks from Google. Um, there's, there's no way for us to have a comprehensive list that's always up to date of problematic sites or, you know, politically questionable um, sites. That's a... Uh... Well, that's, it sounds like a great value add from an agency to be able, I mean, that point you made is a great one, is we're so focused on Breitbart, like that's the only alt-right or uh, kind of fake news-ish site out there. I'm sure there's way worse sites than Breitbart because they have like some air of legitimacy, uh, apparently, from what I read about them. Uh, and I did go there today to see uh, like what ads appear on Breitbart um, because there are actually um, AdSense, uh, Amazon ads, and Newsmax. Which I think if you have Newsmax ads on your site, that's probably, we can just find a list of Newsmax. Who uses Newsmax to serve ads? And those are the sites you don't want to be on. But sorry, Newsmax. Um, but that's a really good point that it's like not just Breitbart. And you can, you can try to solve the bigger problem by coming with a list of 100. But like nobody's out there monitoring the Internet for every, you know, AdSense, you know, person who signs up that has like some content you don't want to be seen on. Um, Interesting. Sounds like an opportunity. Someone should go make that product somehow. Um, and then, oh, and then for YouTube with videos. So Google did come out today and kind of say, we've been missing the, the boat on this one. We're going to get much better on pulling your content off of videos. Sounds like you don't necessarily trust things are going to change. I'd probably agree. So I don't know what, what we can expect to see. But people are pulling budgets. Have you seen, have you seen people say, hey, we want to pull our budget and you weren't able to talk them off the cliff? 
No, we, we actually haven't had anyone say that they weren't going to spend. Um, I think that if uh, companies think that Google is evil, that they're not advertising on Google, and they're probably not our client. <laughs> um, because you, you have to have some level of trust in it when it's this, unfortunately, because they are this behemoth. Um, and if that's how, you know, where your customers are, um, you've kind of got to be there. And I think that um, there's always going to be these examples of, of really horrible ads in context. Um, and what makes Breitbart really interesting to me is that people only care now because there's people that disagree with Breitbart reading it. And all those other sites that we're talking about, the people currently reading them are totally fine with them. And so they're not going to have any issue with these brands being on them because they think positively of sites. And so there's not kind of this negative association between that website and the brand. It's just when we're in this interesting political situation, people are trying to figure out what is this Breitbart thing, who are these people that read it, um, and they're realizing how much they dis disagree with it. And then when they see a brand that they like or you know previously thought favorably of, advertising there it kind of just throws everything into question. Yeah, it's certainly unique when, uh, I forget what Steve Bannon, who is the head of Breitbart, is Trump's chief of staff, I want to say. Um, so th obviously because of that connection, we're in a very unique position where like the head of the media for one of the most conservative media groups actually works in the White House and has the, the president. Um, so that's just weird. I think that's, uh, so to your point, we're in this kind of unique political situation where it's like all these people who don't read that type of stuff think, oh, well, this is the person who's running, uh, helping run the country. So I want to go find a way to defund him <laughs> through Breitbart. Um, one other question on Breitbart. The, um, so I talked to somebody who works at, or who worked formerly at AppNexus, and they hadn't been there for a few years. So, uh, but they said there's this concept of like unmarked inventory where sometimes, you know, let's say I'm making up the brand names here, but let's say ESPN, you know, they're selling direct buys IO and they're getting $10 CPMs. And they have unsold inventory, but they don't want to sell it as ESPN because then they can't sell $10 CPM. So they can like sell it somehow as unmarked inventory and they might sell it to one kind of network. And then that network will repackage it up as unmarked inventory, you know, sell it to another one and then it goes off. Um, and that perhaps that's how some people are ending up on sites like Breitbart through this kind of like trail of uh, unmarked inventory. I don't know. Do you think that uh, conspiracy theory has any merit? I think it does. I mean, Google has that as well. You can't see all of the sites that you're shown on. And what's, what's unclear is if your uh, exclusions um, count in those where you're not getting reporting, right? So if you're, if you're, everything's getting grouped together in, you know, AdSense for mobile apps, um, do your exclusions cross that line or not? I, I don't know about that. Um, if anything, the other part that's funny is like, you know, being in ad tech forever, you know, we're not surprised, I think, by how uh, placements work in GDN and, and ad networks. But people who aren't are just like, what do you mean? I don't know where, you know, I can't see exactly where my ad is placed because they think it's still like, oh, I pay $10 to show my ad on the right hand side of this website. Um, so it is kind of funny to be on the sidelines and just see all these people who never really we're in the ad tech business, like just, you know, kind of throwing themselves at this whole issue with like, uh, and then look at the response. I mean, like, I forget how much money uh, has been pulled from YouTube in terms of video advertising, but you know, I think a lot of it uh, is probably like press driven, marketing driven for the appearance that your brand represents something when in reality, you know, uh, whether you wanted to advertise on that, you probably already knew that your ads were appearing on stuff you didn't want it to be appearing on that was not brand safe, but you were kind of like, you know, oh, well, there's not much I could do about it, right? Yeah. I think um, what a lot of these, uh, these crusaders against Breitbart are forgetting is that um, Breitbart makes money for everyone that visits their site. And so if they're going to the site to look for ads, they're, they're actually part of the problem. Um, and they're seeing those ads 
because they're visiting. Um, and so, okay, they can maybe get a few thousand brands off of Breitbart. That's not going to get Breitbart's ad units to not be there. It's all going to be lesser brands, maybe. And they're still going to be making money off of it. And they're going to be making money off of every single time that one of those people is going to Breitbart just to find ads to shame the you know company from stopping advertising there. So if you want to find the the root cause, I think we can share the blame with the people that are going to Breitbart. It's a it's a vicious circle. Um, interesting. So uh, there was one other thing I wanted to talk about uh, that's in the news that is not uh, about Breitbart, uh, but it is a little political. So Facebook announced today you can now connect to your like local representative, I shouldn't say local, any representative, whether it's local, state, or uh, national. So it's called Town Hall. And it's, you know, it seems like it's the, the end of, not the end, part of the journey that, that Suck's been on to try to make Facebook more of like a, a global citizen, et cetera. Um, and there's a bunch of folks who have said Facebook has to just suck it up and admit they are a media company at this point. They publish more news than anyone, and they should start acting like a media company. Uh, where they start, you know, curating content and promoting things and fact-checking and all that fun stuff. Uh, I know you're, you're a search person at heart, but uh, do you have any opinion on whether Facebook should become the next big media company? I, I do think they should stop uh, denying it. Um, I think it, they are in this weird position. I mean, I'll admit that a lot of the news I get is from what's in my Facebook feed, but I try and realize that that's what's happening. I'm like, why? Why am I seeing this article in my feed? I should I I should really question, you know, the source and and what how how real is this news that I'm reading? And Facebook does not make that easy uh, at all um, because if it gets if it gets likes, it's it's good in Facebook's mind. I think that um, you know I had not heard this announcement about town hall, but it sounds interesting. I think that. Admitting they're a media company is not necessarily contrary to what they're trying to do as well. I don't think that those necessarily are two different directions. Fair. Um, and well, and you can check it out. It's in the left sidebar of Facebook. Uh, it basically just gives you a list of your politicians. But a lot of people say Zuckerberg is, you know, lining up to be the next, maybe not the next president, but a future president, um, which I think is kind of crazy. Why would you want to? Like, government doesn't change anything anymore, right? It's like all, I mean, Google, Facebook, Apple, Uber, you know, like these are the companies, for better or for worse, that seem to change the world. So I don't know why you'd go from running Facebook to running a company called the U.S. government that is just so slow and painful. That's a really good point. I think that uh, the head of Facebook has a lot more power than the head of the United States. Yeah, in many ways. I mean, if you're like another country and it's like, oh, you know, the president's coming, it's like, cool. But if like Facebook's coming and they might bring an office and like, you know, millions of dollars of like local revenue, it's a lot more impactful than like some diplomat who's going to talk to you about a, you know, some zone of economic development or something. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's part of the reason why no one wants to do politics. Like young people, no one wants to be a politician when it used to be like, you know, ooh, you could be the senator and really change the world. And now it's like, well, you could be the senator and just complain in a room all day and then have to work on 3,000-page budgets that no one wants to read. That sounds like a great <laughs> job. Um, well, that's pretty political. We took it there. We definitely took it pretty political. I appreciate you for hanging in there. Yeah, no problem. Well, I know the Vermont crowd as independence. You have an independent spirit, so I didn't know you were going to go with it. Were you going to take out a Bernie sign and start uh, <laughs> yelling at me? Uh, yeah, this office definitely still feels the burn. We had a couple of visitors come in yesterday, and uh, they saw Bernie in the airport. So it was uh, one of their first time visiting the Vermont office, and they get welcomed by Bernie Sanders. So <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously, San Francisco, there are quite a few people out here that still feel the burn as well. So uh, you have you're still in a somehow there's some connection, but, you know, East Coast, West Coast we somehow are connected. Um, well, I appreciate all the good info about testing and some of the insights about uh, kind of your experience on Pinterest and, and Gemini as well. If people want to find you, they can go to HeroConf or 3Q Digital. I assume the website is like 3QDigital.com. Am I right? Yeah. Um, 
And then you, are you on the Twitter? I am on Twitter. Caitlin underscore Halpert is uh, my handle. I am not super active outside of <laughs> conferences, but uh, if you tweet at me, I'll probably respond. And um, I do have a number of blog posts on the 3Q Digital website as well. Awesome. Well, we will check those out. Maybe we'll throw some in the comments, too, for the show. So I appreciate it, Caitlin. It was really nice meeting you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much.